worried. I'm not worried. All right. Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, a podcast where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. On today's episode, we're going to chat with my former co-worker and former NYPD captain and current CEO of KH Briga Security, Peter Marino. Peter, how are you, and welcome to the show. I'm very well, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Thank you, Peter. And tell us... Before we get started, tell us about your company and where people can get in contact with you. Well, thank you. Basically, we're in uh, the New York tri-state area, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. We're based out of Mount Kisco in Westchester County, but really we service uh, the island, the city, uh, the Jersey suburbs, Connecticut, and upstate. And predominantly, we do schools. Uh, school security is uh, unfortunately very much needed today. Uh, some retail work, some armed work. Uh, and uh, basically we provide people, bodyguards to, you know, regular retail security guards, everything in between. And your company covers the entire tri-state area, correct? That's right. And where, where can people uh, check out your website and get in contact with you? It's uh, khbriger.com. So it's khbriger.com. Okay. And uh, we'll check out your website, and I'll post that on, on, on the show. So Peter and I met very early in my career. I was a rookie cop. I had just gotten transferred to a borough unit called Bronx Task Force. Peter had just been promoted. Sergeant was on his way out the door, who was already gone. And I met at a promotion ceremony. Peter was getting a plaque. And I remember one of the old timers came over to me and says, you should hook up with that guy someday. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, he's, he's just like you. He's a car guy. He's got all the energy in the world. He could teach you a lot of things. I said, all right. I, we just shook hands and, you know, we went like the NYPD. You don't know somebody. You kind of go your separate ways. A couple of years later, I wind up in the 50th precinct, which is in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. At the time, it was a sleepy precinct, not a lot going on. There was a lot going on, but beneath the surface. And you had just gotten promoted and was sent to the 50th precinct. And I mean, you and I just kind of hooked up like gangbusters. You, you want to go into how, how that kind of took off? Sure. Well, you know, one thing I didn't know about, I thought you just, you know, we just uh, made friends. I didn't know it was all set up, you know. You, you had a plan, but uh, whatever. So it happened. So basically, um, when I arrived in the 5-0, in the it, as you say, it was uh, a country club, sleepy command, but it had potential if you wanted to find bad guys. They were there. You just had to look a little harder. You had to know what to do, and you had to have the will. And a lot of the cops there, the will had been removed from them when they got there, you know, by a culture that was some of the older guys there just, they, they, they liked it being slow. They liked doing a suburban police thing. Um, they didn't really care too much for the rock and roll, let's go out and get bad guys thing. But I took over a squad of cops, eight cops that were suffering under that kind of tutelage uh, and supervision. And they were chomping at the bit to do something, but they didn't really know it. They knew it and they kind of knew it, but they didn't. And when I just, I loved patrol. I used to bribe my fellow sergeants so that I would never do the desk. I'd buy them lunch, buy them lottery tickets, so I could hit patrol every night. And I did. Um, so, long story short is, it was really fun to get these kids who had a couple of years under their belt already, some of them more than that, and actually teach them as if they were rookies, can open their eyes 
to, you know, uh, how you go out and fight the bad guys, you know, fight good versus evil. It's true. And everybody in the NYPD eventually develops their niche, niche, and mine was stolen cars, yours was stolen cars, and I was always getting involved in car chases. And I remember one day you pulled me aside, you, you had that squad, I wasn't in your squad initially, and you said, you know, I think you're doing great, but you know, you don't have to get into these car chases to get stolen cars. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And you're like, people steal cars, they change the vehicle identification numbers, and they're right out there in plain sight. And I just couldn't grasp the concept of what you were talking about. And I started going out with you sometimes when uh, my partner banged in and your steady driver wasn't around and our squads had matched up. I would jump in the car with you and I'm like, it was almost like voodoo or something because I really didn't understand what you were doing. But then after a while, once I figured it out, I'm like, wow. It's as clear as day. And, I, and we yeah. made so many stolen car arrests we used to fill up the precinct parking lot with yep. stolen cars, and then the property clerk and, and the integrity control officer was in charge of, you know, the, the basic crap that goes around the station. We'd get on our ass like, you got to start taking these cars out to the pound because yeah. we were making two, three stolen vehicle arrests a week, and the lot just filled up that there weren't sometimes parking for the patrol cars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was, it was it, it's as you say, uh, it, it's kind of mysterious until you understand and how that happened to me was I had my last job before I joined the police department I was a mechanic I was a dealer technician for uh, those might remember Rushnik Pontiac and Tarrydown and Subaru so I knew cars I always loved cars um, but I always knew I wanted to be a cop that was my calling but um, I remember one of my first car stops um, for, you know, you get your summonses for the month, whatever. One of my first car stops was, uh, I think it was a 72 Camaro. And that car is very distinct. And I, when I pulled it over, I forget the VIN that was on it, but it was not a VIN from a 72 Camaro. The, the year was off. The registration said, I don't know, 75 Camaro, whatever it was that it said, I forget. Usually it's the other way around. It'll usually be an older VIN on a newer steel. But anyway, I knew it wasn't there. It was, that was not that kind of car. And I had heard about the altered VIN thing, but I never really saw one until then. But I was so sure that that wasn't it. I brought the car into the station house, brought the guy in, and um, we had auto crime come out. And in that case, you know, that was kind of in depth. You have to find the hidden serial numbers. And uh, that one was a little difficult. It was behind the blower motor, and not to get into too much detail, but I was in awe when I saw them ripping his car apart. And then they didn't really want me to know where the, the hidden number was, because that's kind of like their thing. Well, that became your thing. Uh, so, uh, so, but I, I, I couldn't, I, I saw it. And, um, and that was the beginning of it for me, because I realized, you know, um, that, that, that there was, um, it, it was a marriage of my two my two loves, you know. And it well, worked. it was like there are gold in them, there are hills. Because yes. what, well, that too, yeah. Because you know, I was a rookie. I wanted to make a name for myself. I wanted to be a cop. I wanted to get into, and I did get into anti crime with in record time in that command in the four seven at the time. Um, I forget exactly how many years. It was less than two years on the job, and I was in anti crime, which was unheard of then. Unheard of then. Now, unless you were a chief's kid. But um, uh, I remember the captain, which whom I had never met, 
because uh, uh, they didn't talk. They didn't come out of their office. He called me in one day. He says, uh, yeah, kid, um, they want me to put you in, in, in anti-crime. Uh, what do you think about that? I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And he's like, okay, it's against my better judgment, but I'll do it. You know, and I, and that was the, that was all from getting out there and making a niche for yourself, getting the um, the expertise and getting the numbers. Basically, you know, people see numbers on page. When you were in the four seven, were you there? I'm not going to mention the guy's name, but were you in the four seven where that uh, NYPD cop was suspected of killing his wife? Oh yeah. Were you there when that was going on? I was there, and we were on midnights. I got sent there. The four seven had had a reputation of. You know, we needed some cleaning up, some house cleaning. The borough wanted to sh move out some of the uh, hair bags, if you will. Um, so they brought in like 18 rookies, of which I was one. And we pretty much all of us got sent on late tours because that's where the problem, I believe, was. Um, and then the old timers never spoke to you. Right. Never. I mean, rarely. I mean, very few words. But every one of us was spoken to and said, see those two guys over there? You don't talk to them. And that was the gentleman, that, well, the person of whom the, the yeah. you referenced, uh, the person you referenced, and um, his partner. And the two of them, they were in a special unit. Uh, all they did was write summonses on the midnight. It was a traffic car. They wrote summonses for the captain, and they, uh, you know, they got their weekends off. But nobody talked to them, and they didn't tell me why. The, the, the other cops, it was not. Uh, there was not a need to know. Right. But suffice to say. They were warning me, those two guys are bad guys, or at least one of them is a bad guy, but they didn't say which. They said, Just don't, we, we don't talk to them. You won't talk to them. And it turns out he got a collared for, uh, uh, I think he got collared, uh, or at least it came very close to being collared for it. I can't I, I remember. Don't think but he, he was, I don't think he was charged for the murder of his wife, who to this day, I mean, she has not turned up. Or, or did the oh, no, no, she did. The, the, he had, uh, uh, somebody had shackled her to a ladder and sunk her off City Island. And then um, it was determined that that ladder was the same brand that's purchased en masse from the NYPD uh, and probably taken from the 4-7 garage. I don't think he did time for the murder. I don't think so either. I think he moved in his female, uh, another female cop right after his wife vanished. He hooked up with another female cop who had children. And I think he was molesting them. You know, I, I, I remember that. Yeah, I think you're right. But, you know, it's sad to say, but um, um, at least in, in that environment, the cops knew uh, enough to warn the rookies coming in, listen, we don't tolerate that kind of thing. You don't talk to him. You know, uh, they may not have been perfect people, but they were, they were good. It's almost like, you know, and I, I, I talk about this in my books and on my podcast, uh, the, the old timers, the veterans do not roll out the red carpet for the rookies. No. But they, they went as far as to warn you that, you know, that could be a career ender if you hook up with these guys or, you know, they're, they're toxic. Just stay the hell away from them. And, and more than that, they, 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 didn't, they were the enemy. They were the bad guys. They were just happened to be wearing our uniform. But so, the, you know, there was some... Um, you know, loyalty to good versus evil there. Um, and that's what, that that too. They warned me to protect me, warned us to protect us, but also to draw a line. You know, we're the good guys. 
Yeah, it's um, and, and you come across that from time to time on the job. Unfortunately, I, I think the New York City Police Department is very clean, but with a mm -hmm. forty, thirty to forty thousand member department, you're you're definitely going to get bad apples. You just it's just a part of life. But I'll say this about the job. Um, I mean, once I, th they make no bones about it. From the day you're hired, they tell you you're going to get fired if you screw around. And yep. the, the moment they suspect something, I mean, they're all over it. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, and, and, and I, I, it, it, I know it hurts you and it hurts every honest cop, um, of which they are the majority, uh, when something happens like that and it tarnishes the badge, it tarnishes us. And it hurts me deeply, even to this day, because it is a, a career that I wanted, even to my father's uh, chagrin. He, uh, he came here from Argentina, and I remember when he got a whiff that I was going to be a cop, you know, he, he really wasn't happy because, you know, in some of the, the South American other countries at the time, he came here in the 50s, back then, they were thoroughly corrupt. And many still are, you know? And so... Yeah, but just go back, your dad... Your dad was a genius. I mean, your dad was a doctor. He was. Your dad was a genius. He was a doctor in Argentina. He came to the United States, and then he had to become a doctor all over again. Yeah. And, I mean, highly intelligent man, and he wanted you, if, if memory serves me correctly, he wanted you to go into medicine. Well, you know, he, he just presumed that was the thing. It was going to happen, you know. He started sending me to the good schools, and, you know, he, he was uh, old school where he didn't really talk much. Um, and he certainly didn't say, hey, this is, you're going to be a doctor and this is why. It was just understood. And, um, you know, he came here, he fled Argentina. It's a long story, I won't get into it, but I can honestly tell you, he, he fled for his life to come here for political reasons. And uh, this country offered him uh, sanctuary and the opportunity to, to do his research, which is what he really was. Uh, he was a surgeon. And, 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 he, and a good one, but his passion was research. Uh, he, he, was, he retired as director of surgery uh, at Lenox Hill. And so, you know, he was a mad scientist ultimately. That's what he but was. But who did he and, pass that on to? Because you're the same way. And I've, <laughs> I've often told you, you could be anything you wanted. I've, I've said this to you and I've said it to me. If you wanted to be a pilot tomorrow, if you'd study enough, you could be a pilot. If you wanted to become an engineer. He you was were, actually. Yeah, but you, you have that quest for knowledge too. Like you're never satisfied. You're constantly trying to build a better mousetrap or figure something out. Maybe I'm a little uh, slower than I used to be at that because I'm, I'm real busy growing the company, which is a chore in and of itself, you know. Uh, but yeah, I do have that. You know, um, again, I know there's limited time, but I'm reading uh, a couple of good books on longevity now, uh, on, uh, written by some really, really bright people. Um, and they go into depth, and every time I, uh, they, you know, genetics and genome, the whole thing, every time I start to get into that and reading that, I get really curious. Um, matter of fact, it's, I think you know I, uh, I did retire, or take my time, burn my time. I had two years on the books accumulated from time spent at the Trade Center. And I uh, actually went to Columbia for post-bac pre-med because I thought, well, maybe uh, 20 years later after I can, you know, I can uh, be a doctor. And uh, a couple of good doctors that I met along the way talked me out of it. And, um, you know, because I would have been a 50 year old uh, rookie doctor, which is not optimal, you know. Um, uh, so, a lot of hours, uh, late oh, yeah. hours. And... Yeah, yeah. So, and, and then one doctor put it pretty, pretty bluntly to me. He said, 
How many doctors are there in the world? How many doctors are there just in New York City? And then he said, how many NYPD captains are there? And at the time, there were 400 or so. Um, and um, you know, he said, look, you're doing something really important. You're good at it. Stay at it. You know? And I did. I went back. I saved a couple of weeks of vacation time, went back, and, uh, and I really, I'm glad I did. You know, I enjoyed my time going back and became a commanding officer and uh, um, learned how to really fight crime from a higher level where, and I don't mean that in an aloof way, I mean where you can really affect bigger areas because you have more people to do that. And you can really monitor um, statistics and do that precision policing thing, which was a whole other thing. To me, the majority of my time being, a, 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 even as a lieutenant, was precinct-based and let's take our troops and go out and lock up bad guys because I always got into those little specialized enforcement units. But as a CO, you know, you really had to sit back and be the executive and learn how to most efficiently use the, the few resources that you have to, get, uh, to do the best you can to protect the public and prevent crime. And it was, instead of, instead of just catching the bad guys, it was let's, let's see how we can stop them uh, before they do anything. You know, and, and then, then it, it, the whole ComStat thing, uh, you know, the micromanagement, uh, some people call it, and it was, but it was also, it was necessary. It was good. Measuring things. You can't really affect anything if you can't measure it. And that's something I learned very, I very clearly. But I think ComStat was very effective when it first came out, the first couple of years. It got rid of the dead wood. It held mm -hmm. these precinct commanders. Like you said, I remember in a couple of precincts I worked on earlier, you didn't even know who the commanding officer was. I mean, he never came right. out of his room. And the number two guy, the executive officer, was like a joke. Like, you didn't even see, never saw that guy. Yeah, and, you know, Comstat held these guys accountable. What's going on in your precinct? But over time, the job got addicted to statistics. They just did. And it kind of became Lord of the Flies at, at these Comstat meetings where it was more about embarrassing and bullying people. And I, I always say, like, Comstat to a point, they, they got so addicted to the statistics, the NYPD sometimes doesn't know when to take its foot off the gas or the neck of the community. And it's, mm. it's like if you had cancer, God forbid, and you go for chemotherapy and you get rid of the problem, you don't keep going back for chemotherapy. You, you, you do other preventative things. They would get addicted to statistics. Well, why aren't you writing these summonses? Why aren't you making these? Well, we kind of cle cleared it out. Maybe we should look at something else now, but they just kept cracking that whip and burning people out. You know, you, 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 you're right. Um, but I do think, though, that, that keeping your foot on the gas is what kept the city safe. Um, and I, and I, there's something that I really want to bring out about that, and we'll try and keep it at 30,000 feet so I don't bore your audience to sleep. But what, what it is basically is, you know, it's not... Rocket science. When you're fighting crime, you got to keep as many bad guys in jail at any given time as possible. Uh, but so how do you go around that? If you know you grab a guy for robbery and he's probably not going to do five years like he should because some overcrowding or whatever, he's going to get out. At least you can keep that person in jail for as long as possible uh, while they wait trial. So you take that down to the next lower level. And what would... Mayor Giuliani did when he came in was remember the squeegee people all over the city. Remember all yeah. those minor crimes. Those people pop, were part of the population 
that every city has, every community has that will commit crime. You got to keep as many of those people in jail at every moment as possible. Knowing that you can't keep them in jail for a long time, what did we do? We kept them in jail two, three time, two, three days at a time, waiting to see a judge. Maybe because they didn't pay their summons for one of those minor violations that you talk about. But guess what? For those three days, they weren't pushing somebody in front of a train. They weren't slashing somebody on the subway because they were EDPs too, emotionally disturbed people. Um, and so the names always changed on Rockers Island. But the total number of people there, we tried to keep it around 20,000, 22,000. We monitored it. If you could keep it at 20, 22,000, that's 20, 22,000 people that are not on the street causing mayhem. It didn't matter what the name was, as long as the number was there. That's why the, 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 the keeping your foot on the gas mattered. Yeah, but, but, but Pete, it got to the point, so here I am later in my career, I'm a detective in auto crime, and Comstat was up. And they started calling in organized crime now to Comstat. OCCB was going down. Right. And my lieutenant was a great guy, but he was terrified of getting called on the carpet. So he would give me these ridiculous tasks. He would come to me and say, I got Comstat on Thursday. And this would be on Monday. He says, can you go through BADS and a couple of systems and get me a printout of every person that's on parole in the borough of Manhattan for GLA, Grand Larceny Auto? And I said, uh, yeah, well, I says, it, you know, I have, I, you know, and by that point I had contacts and probation, parole. I says, yeah, I right, can get right. it. It's going to take a day or two. I amassed this list of 300 people. And he says, okay, what I need you to do before Thursday is find these people, track them down and ask them if they're committing and ask them if they're committing, if they're stealing cars. And I said, I said, boss. You know how it works. Half these pe these are halfway houses. People put down bogus addresses. He goes, yeah, but in case they ask me. So, I mean, I would be tied to that computer room. Yeah. I killed more trees than Paul Bunyan printing yeah, yeah, up paperwork yeah. because they were terrified of getting... I can see where getting into the weeds like that is... is um, you know, you're, you're always looking to figure out where the next gotcha is going to come from. You know, where, where the people that have... I, I lived it where, you know, the, the people that have um, the time and the resources in the puzzle palace, as we call it, headquarters, um, uh, they would think of things like that. And sometimes they came up with brilliant ideas, but a lot of times they were just trying to come up with something new, something different, something that they can make a name for themselves for, something that they can come at a CEO with and say, hey, are you doing this? Um, um, and you never knew where it was going to come from. So you're right. Um, and also, it became a numbers game. Um, uh, the stop, question, and frisk, which is an immensely valuable tool, uh, became just a number. And now, because it was abused, it's now maligned where it shouldn't be. The abuse should be maligned. Uh, the abuse just to get a number to, to, to show that you're working. Um, but that tool that they, that they, they now is now painted with such a broad brush that it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a curse word, you can't even say it. But it, it, it really, it is taking a tool away from management, from detectives. I mean, so for the viewers that don't know, that when you do a stop, question, and frisk, you fill out a form called a 250, then, and Uniform Report 250, that's where it got its nickname, uh, 250s. And I would tell my anti-crime sergeant, listen, I got a bad robbery pattern over here, and I had one, uh, that comes to mind by the subway station the people that were going to work 
in the wee hours of the morning, like five in the morning, to get to work in Manhattan from the Bronx at seven to do their largely blue collar jobs, working in hotels, working at construction sites, working people were getting robbed going down the stairs to the subway on 138th Street. And so how do you fight that? The guy would be in the wind. He would wait for them to go down the stairs. So obviously he was waiting, you know, lying in wait as it were. So what do you do? Sent my plainclothes guys, anti-crime guys, which is another bad word nowadays, out to stop these guys, uh, to, to stop people who were lurking in the shadows at five o'clock in the morning near a subway station. By the way, what are you doing? And can I have your name? And what's that? Do you have a bulge there? Is that, is that a gun? Uh, you know, um, let them know, first of all, we're looking at them. And maybe you should stop doing what you're doing if it happens to be the person. Because what good reason is there to be hanging out there at 5 o'clock in the morning? Now, maybe they were waiting for a ride somewhere. Could be legit. So, you, you, you know, and, 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 a, and an honest person won't mind telling you that. And a good cop will, you know, understand that. So then, anyway, the, 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 the information that's lost now by not, never mind the deterrent of crime, because you take that information now back and you go and you run it. Maybe that's a guy who's on parole for robberies, and maybe he's a guy that you should put his picture in a photo array and show it to some of the victims, and maybe you got your collar and you stop the robbery pattern, and you save good people from becoming victims. That's the immediate result. However, the bigger result is that you now compile a database and you know where people are, bad guys are, and where they've been, where, and where, what their habits are, where their haunts are. And so a detective, as you know, when they start taking a case on and they have this folder with all this stuff in there, they have to start and we're, you know, figuring out, like, you know, like Columbo, who, who did this? But Columbo, you know, with his cigar in his coat, didn't have that database that we have had. I think they still have it, but it's, it's much less um, robust. Uh, they used to have all this, you could, you could run, oh, that guy got a summons for urinating on the subway stairs. You know what? Let me run him. Oh, guess what? He's got a robbery history. Let's put his picture in the photo, right? So much data, so, so much gumshoe work that, that, that can't be done now, or that, that they just don't have the information to do as well, um, is a result of, of, of the demonization of 250s, largely in part of, because of... Um, uh, Comstat, as you said, it became too aggressive. Yeah, they just they just kept beating it and beating it like a horse, and and then eventually people just got turned off by it, and people for political yeah. reasons. And then, and then you know the, the politicians grabbed the hold of it. It became a talking point, and now the rest is history. Now cops are afraid to put their hands on people, um, and it's a shame. Well, speaking of gumshoe work, you were involved in a. <laughs> a wild car chase with a homicide and, and a guy tried taking your life. Could you tell that story? Sure. Um, I was working with um, my partner, uh, the late Chief Silks. We were both cops at the time. And um, we, we started uh, chasing a stolen car. Simple as that. It was a straight up steal, not an altered VIN. It was a straight up steal. And we chased it from the Q uh, Grand Circle area in the Bronx uh, up to the city line. Sorry, I have company. Uh, up to the city line in um, New Rochelle. And we had been, it was a pretty lengthy chase. And so our dispatchers had radioed ahead to the state police who closed the road uh, at the city line. Consequently, our bad guy crashed. 
and I know what happens next. Usually they jump out of the car and they're in, in the wind and I got to go chase them. And I really didn't want to do that. Uh, so I tried to get him while he was still in the car. I chose poor tactics. Uh, and when I opened the door to pull him out by the collar, he pointed a gun at me and pulled the trigger. And luckily the, um, the, uh, the round was a dud. And I know that because after we got him out of the car, knocked the gun out of his hand, just like in the movies, my partner and I wrestled him to the ground. We're slip sliding and antifreeze from the car accident. Um, and um, Steve broke two ribs. I busted, uh, uh, I still have a herniated disc from it. Um, it, was a, it was a massive struggle. Guy was on PCP. Finally, we get him cuffed. We're filthy dirty. Uh, and um, emergency service cops, the backup came, but they were hampered. They couldn't get there because the traffic jam from closing the road. Long story short, um, I, I remember being grabbed by an emergency service cop uh, after he had shown me the bullet. He took the bullet out of the gun and he showed a, a, a hit on the striker, on the um, primer. And he said, kid, you're pretty lucky. Look, there's a soft hit on the primer. And the next thing I know, they grabbed me and throwing me in an ambulance because I think I looked paler than I do naturally. Uh, and they thought I was going to faint. They ripped my vest off, threw me in the ambulance. The next thing I know, I was in the hospital, and they were, you know, uh, um, that's the shock that, you oh, know, yeah. after the adrenaline goes away, you know. That, but didn't uh, that guy but, um, kill somebody? Wasn't he wanted for Well, that's the thing. We didn't know. Um, we thought we had his car theft. That's all it was. But what turns out, he had been earlier that night, had killed two people. He had run them over. Um, while they were walking their dogs, killed them and their two dogs. Um, now, come to find out later, he was a member of what uh, some might know, the Purple Gang, which is, uh, sorry about that, which is uh, an offshoot of the mob. It was a family uh, of the mob at the time. If you Google Purple Gang, I'm pretty sure it's going to come up. Um, and so one thing I remember about that is it started snowballing. The detectives are asking me questions about how, and this and that. And it turns out we had a pretty good collar. The guy had just killed two people. Um, and it's too bad we didn't catch him before. But, uh, you know, but long story short, um, you know, I, I remember going to trial uh, um, and he spent a few years in jail. And I remember going to trial um, and his father who was also in the Purple Gang, would always get there early and get a seat right before the jury box, right before the, the witness box, sit directly in front of me and anybody else who was testifying. And he always wore a different suit every day, beautiful suit with a little flower, and he'd just sit there and smile at you. That's all he would do. Just look right in your eyes and smile at you. And um, it was the same smile his son was wearing when he tried to shoot me. I remember that to the, my last day. He was smiling. That's something you'll never forget. No. He was smiling at me when he pulled the trigger because he thought it was going to go off. And, it almost uh, did. It almost did. Yeah. And you had so, another one. But you, I mean, you've had a, a wild career. I remember when you were a supervisor in, in task force when you were running the auto loss in a unit with, with us. And um, we um, tell the story about how Internal Affairs calls up and gives you the heads up that they're coming to drug test a female. You could, you could tell the story better than I can. Yeah, well, as I told you, I hated the desk. And uh, this day I got stuck on the desk. And uh, it, was a, it was like a weekend morning, maybe a Sunday morning. It was a sleepy, quiet day, we hoped. 
uh, and um, a fellow sergeant who shall remain nameless, a, a very uh, salty kind of guy uh, of Irish descent. Um, typical cop you look up in the in the dictionary's pictures there is the old time New York City Irish cop type look. Uh, however, he was um, unusually um, fond of stringing together very uh, articulate thoughts in, in colorful language, um, and he was good at it. Um, so he came to me, and he used to like to call me Pedro because he knew my father was from Argentina, and I was half Irish and half Argentine. But you know, he he, he was I know he was giving me a little dig there. So he'd say, "Hey Pedro, listen, uh, I just got a call from Internal Affairs." They need you to hold on to so-and-so. Don't, don't let her go out on patrol. I'm going to assign her to, the, to some inside job for the day because it seems that uh, they've been following her. She's been hanging out with some unsavory characters and they found in a pocket diary in her veins. <laughs> so the bottom line is, you know, um, they, they expect... Uh, no, they expect to find in a pocket diary in her veins because she was hanging out with drug dealers and such. And they watched her spend the night at a bar until uh, wee hours and then go home with this perp and, uh, and then come to work. But I think they got into the motel room after she left. Oh, that's and right. It was a motel room. And they found crack and such. So they knew. They knew they were going to find that a pocket diary. Uh, and, and that was just so typical of... You know, you never know what you're going to get when you come to work as a cop um, or a boss, you know, supervisor. It's just, you never know. Um, and, um, you know, that was, as you said before, the NYPD was pretty good, and I think they still are, at policing themselves. And I was very happy and proud, and still am, to say that I didn't witness corruption. Um, I did not, you know, uh, except for that, that kind of thing, you know, um, but, but that's isolated. There was no organized corruption of uh, taking, you know, uh, payments or anything like that. None of that. And I, and I, and I, I'm, I'm, nor should they be. But, you know, I'm, I think people have this misguided view, uh, perhaps not misguided, but certainly inaccurate of um, the NYPD. Uh, certainly in my 30 years there, uh, it was on the level. Like you said, you never know what to expect then you were working with my childhood friend the time um, you guys pulled up uh, that building in Riverdale. It came over as a dispute. And as you guys are getting out of the car, the, the woman comes out the window. Oh, yeah. I'll tell that story. No, no, it was different. Uh, it came in as a jumper down already. So that means that somebody had uh, jumped out the window. Usually... They, it's uh, committing suicide. And Riverdale has these high-rise apartment, luxury apartment buildings, and this was one of them. So I, I was training the rookies. I was a training sergeant, something I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and I had your friend with me, that's right, and another uh, rookie. And um, we pull up, and there's an elderly woman on the sidewalk, and she's exhibiting what I know from my medical training as agonal respirations, which are these slow, end-of-life attempts to cling on, but it's not happening. So nine times out of 10 or more, probably 99 out of 100, when you witness agonal respirations, you know it's, it's, they're going out of the picture, as it were, um, to use an NYPD uh, little phrase. Anyway, long story short, I knew, I had two cops with me. I, I, I instructed one cop to stay with the, the victim, the, uh, the aided case. Said, stay here, direct the ambulance, 
and ride to the hospital with her, do what you have to do. I took the other worker with me. I, I said to the doorman, do you know her? He said, yeah, what apartment? We went to the knock on the apartment door. It was, I think, in the teens, 19 or 20 floors up. And um, a small gentleman in his 50s or so, and I use that term inaccurately again, gentleman, um, comes to the door, and he's he's got suit pants on, white socks, that have a tinge of pink at the tips, at the toes, and he's got this T-shirt that's got a little bit of pink as well, a white T-shirt. And so, you know, it doesn't look good right away. It looks like blood to me, but I'm not sure. So I, I asked him, just blurt it out, what's going on here? And, and I mean, it was quite innocent. I wasn't trying to elicit a confession or anything from him. I was just like, what's going on here? And he said, equally, uh, you know, blurting out, he said, oh, I, I had a fight with my sister and she fell out the window. Okay, fine. I think you should stop talking now. And, uh, and I told the officer who was with me, I won't mention his name, read him his rights. I looked through the apartment real quick. You could see there had been a struggle. And I walked over to the window that was still open that she had gone out and I saw a pool of urine. Uh, and the more I looked, the more evidence I saw of where he had uh, hit her over the head with a lamp. Turns out they were siblings and they were fighting over their uh, late parents' estate. And he hit her over the head with a very heavy lamp. She bled. He took the shower curtain down, dragged her to the window and threw her out. This is what you could see happened, you know, without any evidence uh, other than um, circumstantial, but it was very strong circumstantial. And a statement that said he had been fighting with her. That's enough. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to know that this guy's got to get locked up right now. And he did. I told, handcuff him, we brought him to the squad. And in NYPD tradition, a collar like that, a homicide, is going to be handed off. Certainly, they're not going to want a rookie to handle it. The rookie's going to give it to a seasoned homicide detective who's going to be able to put the puzzle together uh, in a way that is going to withstand the scrutiny of a defense attorney at court and all that. And it kind of is, you know, disheartening for the young cop. Oh, I want my homicide collar. But that's fully what I expected to happen um, for good reason. So when we get to the squad, um, this person obviously had had uh, some ability to make a phone call before we took him away. And he obviously was a person of means. Never mind that he was living in a luxury apartment building, but he must have had connections too, because before you know it, there's two high-priced attorneys, defense attorneys, and a bureau chief from the district attorney's office in the detective office. That never happens. No. And they were like scrutinizing and questioning why I instructed the officer to lock him up without more of an investigation. And I'm like, it smells bad, you know. Um, but luckily, I had already... At that point, then, the detectives really didn't want it. It was hands off because it was a, it was a hot potato. So I just said, okay, we're going to process. And even though the district attorney was trying to get me to non-process the arrest, as we call it, avoid the arrest pending investigations, I'm not doing that. You... Uh, you can, your office can choose to not process it or, or uh, once we bring it to you in the court, at the courthouse. But I'm not taking it upon myself to avoid this arrest now because I fully believe it's warranted. And it was. In the interim, 
I did my thing. I instructed the training, the cops. I trained them properly how to do the paperwork. I called EMS because the guy had blood on him and I wanted to make sure it wasn't his blood. I asked the ambulance crew, do me a favor, just examine this guy, make sure he's not nicked somewhere, he's not bleeding. And by the way, he's got a little chest hair with some blood in it. Would you try and just cut that off and give it to me? And they did. And uh, we vouchered everything in the way you're supposed to. We built a really strong case. When we got down to the district attorney's office, they voided the arrest. They non-processed it and let him go. Uh, I knew that, that this was not good. And as a matter of fact, the news media had been all over the story already. And there was a blurb uh, before the 11 o'clock news, film at 11. This happened in Riverdale, da, 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 da. arrest has been made. Then I videotaped that, that, even that little blurb. I have it somewhere in my attic. I have it on a VHS, I'll show you how long ago it was. Um, and I was waiting to videotape the story when the news came on. And guess what? It never came. The, the story magically vanished. So the guy obviously had some sort of connection and influence. And um, anyway, the next morning, the district attorney had uh, second thoughts. And they, sent, they went to the 5-0 squad, took some detectives with them, said, we're going to go serve an arrest warrant. Let's go lock this guy up. They go to the apartment. The guy's lawyer answers the door. And he's stalling. He's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. At that moment, our guy jumps out the same window he threw his sister out. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Yep. Oh, yep. wow. Yep. Man, that's a bizarre story. That's a story. Wow. I yeah, remember getting a phone call like at home magnet. about it. You were like a What's magnet. That? Weird shit, man. You were involved, and then a year or two after that, you had that... Um, that socialite that lived with uh, debutante, really wealthy woman, her boyfriend killed her up in Bronxville. Oh, yeah. He was searching for the boyfriend and he jumped off the Tappan Zee Bridge and then you found him floating up in the Hudson. I guess it was in back of Mount St. Vincent or... Um, Somewhere along the Metro North tra train tracks there, uh, uh, along the, the river, you know, uh, picture it. Um, it's a... You know, the gravel, the heavy gravel that they used to lay the bed, the track bed on. It was like that. And then it butted up against the Hudson, which had some almost main-like rocks. And he got floated up on those. You know, in the, in, the, in the spring, people who jump off bridges, which we believed he had jumped off the Tappan Zee because they found his abandoned car there. Um, they tend to go to the bottom in the winter and kind of get stuck in the, the, the bottom in the mud and the murk. And then... When the spring thaw comes, they, they float up. So in the spring, you often find floaters that have been there for a while. Yeah, but you put two and two together, because I remember that. We yeah. pulled up and you go, I'll bet you that's that guy that jumped off the Tappan Zee Bridge. You, you, I mean, you, yeah. you and well, because, had you know, I kept current with things. And it was pretty clear to me. So here's the, the thing that I remember. He, was a, he had met this socialite. He was a contractor, I believe a painter uh, that she had hired. And then they ended up falling in love and getting married. And I think, you know, whatever their falling out was, she wanted to divorce him. And I guess he wasn't having it. And, uh, you know, he was used to the, to the life and such with, with the income, uh, living off her well. But I remember when I saw the body first, he had a, a Patek Philippe watch on. But he was wearing like... Um, you know, a regular flannel shirt 
with just, you know, regular jeans and kind of was that blue collar and socialite mix there, you know? Um, he, it was hard to tell, it was impossible to tell what he looked like because of the state of decomposition, but those two items clicked in my head. I said, I'll bet you that's that guy. Because, I remember it. I remember yeah. you going, that's going to be that guy that, that killed his, his wife up in Bronxville. I said, you think so? And you go, yeah. And it was, it was, um, it was like within a week or two, right? I don't remember how long it took for them to figure it out. It wasn't too long. You know, I, I don't think DNA results were as quick as they are these days, if they were at all even entered into evidence then. I can't recall exactly. Um, but, you know, you have to go through dental records or whatever. They were able to put two and two together and figure out it was him. Do you remember that burglary collar? You and I were working together, and um, I had come back from narcotics. I, I went to the narcotics division for a while. I didn't like it. I came back to patrol. I figured I'm going to do the next 15 years on patrol. I'm done. I don't want to be a detective. It, uh, narcotics left a bitter taste in my mouth. And you started pulling me along. You're like, no, I want you to be my driver. You were running the school unit. And basically, you were in charge of cops that were assigned to the schools. And any problems that came up at the high school, the middle school, you, you, were, you would deal with the administration. And I was your driver. But then again, it formed the perfect storm because I was up for anything. You were up for anything. I mean, you wouldn't think that the guy, two guys in the school unit were going around making felony arrests because those guys tend, it's like the truancy unit, those guys tend to hide. Yeah. And uh, so towards the end of our shift, comes over as a burglary. We pull up to the back of this building and there was a wooden piece of wood up against the Yeah, I remember, a plank. A plank. So I said, all right, I'm going in through the back window. I go in through the back window. You run around to the front of the building. And I get I'm, the apartment's been ransacked. And I remember the woman had cats in her apartment. And she had yarn strings hanging off the back of her door. And I remember the strings were still moving like somebody had slammed the door. And I go right. on the radio, go, Pete, they're still in the building. And you're like, they're in the hallway. And I come flying down the stairs. They had... These two guys, career burglars, they had gotten into this woman's apartment through the window. They had loaded up everything this woman owned, her television set, her jewelry. They had put it in a shopping cart. Remember those like remember. little folding shopping carts your mom or your grandmother would yep. get groceries back in the day? And you caught them in the hallway. And, uh, I mean, it was a really good arrest. And, I mean, you, it was so slam dunk case. And they took it to trial. I couldn't believe I remember. it. Yeah, yeah. It was so simple. You know, they're, they're, they're wheeling out the shopping cart and they had this, it looked very neat the way they were able to pack everything into that thing. And then they had a little cloth or something draped over the top of it so you couldn't see inside. Um, but it was all very neat. I remember that. And the two of them didn't look like the type that we pushing a very nice, neat little uh, shopping cart, the kind you would hang on the front of your uh, trolley cart in, in the grocery store, you know, there were little hooks when we were kids. Um, but um, anyway, they, they, they didn't fit. It was obvious what, what was going on, so we grabbed them up. And uh, I remember I was with a, a cop. Is, One of those later, unit cops. What's that? What's that? What's that? I didn't there was a, I was, I had come in with one of the other school unit cops who was uh, less into it, shall we say. And he was afraid that I was going to stick him with the collar because we grabbed him. And I remember he was like, you know, he had things to do. He had to go home, you know, yeah. uh, you know, but uh, you, you, you remember the guy, I think. Um, yeah, we'll talk off air. We'll talk about that. I don't want to embarrass anybody. No, but uh, long story short, 
that was that was a kind of you know the kind of collar, the kind of job you would the citizenry would hope the police could do: protect their home when they're not there. And if, even though we weren't able to prevent it, we were able to get their stuff back. And it kind of because that burglary is a crime that really hurts. You know, you, you're when you're when you're home is violated you feel violated when when somebody has the nerve to go into your private areas and take your personal belongings that that sticks with you for a while and so yeah it's it sounds like a yeah it's a burglary collar but it's more than a burglary collar it's more than the property that's stolen it's your sense of security that's stolen when when you live in that apartment and so those kinds of collars mean a lot to me you know because you really affect somebody What's funny is after that arrest, shortly thereafter, you go to task force to run the auto larceny unit. And again, I'm still, eh, I'm going to stay in the precinct for the rest of my career. And you gave me two hard kicks in my ass during my career, which was the best thing in the world for me. So you're gone. I'm driving another sergeant who was a great guy. I'm making some arrests. And um, one day, it's, it's, it's on my lunch hour. I'm in the precinct, precinct basement on the couch watching television. And I look up, and you're standing over me with a piece of paper in your hand. And you go, I need you to fill this out. And I go, what are you doing here? Aren't you in task force now? And you go, yeah, I need you to fill this out. And I go, what is it? You said, it's an application for Bronx Task Force. I said, I'm not going there. He goes, listen to me. He goes, I need you there. He goes, you're a car guy. He goes, I'm going to get you there. He goes, we're going to clean house. We're going to make all these stolen car rates. I go, you're crazy. I don't want to do it. You go, just fill out the damn application. And, you and I waited for it. What's that? I waited for it, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, you didn't leave without me filling that thing out. So then you and I and a couple other guys, we just we had a great year or two run. And um, you came to me and you said, listen, I'm on the lieutenant's test. I'm going to get promoted soon. This guy's getting promoted soon. Your partner is going to go work for the State Department. You're going to be left behind. I think you should put in for the auto crime division. And I said, no, I, I already worked in organized crime. I don't want to do it anymore. And you're like, but that's a very different unit. Well, it is. But you you were telling me you got to put in for it because you're going to it's just you're going to die on the vine here. This this is going to end. And I, I didn't want to hear it. And there was a female cop that worked with us who she was no ball of fire. Let's just put it that way. And um, one day I saw her walking around the building in a business suit. And he says, what is she all dressed up for? And you started laughing and you go, she's got, you knew exactly what to say to me. You said, well, she's going for her auto crime interview. You don't want it. So she, <laughs> she might get it. And I went, get me that friggin' application. And I got an application and I got into auto crime. But, yeah. And I appreciate that, Pete, because it was those oh, two welcome. times within two years that I needed that kick in the ass to get out of my own way. And I'll never forget that. Oh, that's nice to hear. I, I, you know, um, honestly, when you tell me these things, I remember them, but I, I didn't. I had not thought of that in years. That's nice to know. Thank you. Now, listen, um, you were always one of the guys. I mean, you walk a fine line, I'm imagining. When you become a supervisor, now you're management. How are you able, because you were always well-liked. All the cops, anywhere I ever worked with you, the cops always liked you. No, rarely did anyone have a bad word to say about you. How were you able to walk that line of being a supervisor but being one of the guys? It's, not, it's, 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 it's much easier said than done, but I think it came fairly naturally to me because, you know, I liked them too. Um, I wanted to be a cop since I was a boy. Um, I... Uh, 
I admire police officers and those who are willing to take on that responsibility. So the respect was mutual. Um, they respected me because I was a fair boss. You want to be really make me happy? Work, work hard. And I always would tell them it's for the people. You know, uh, it sounds really kind of corny, but it's not. You know, and I would always, I, I, I try to tell them, look, I'm going to support you as much as I possibly can because I want you to to do, you know, what it is that you signed up for. Because why? It's important. Because, you know. I believe that what separates us from other countries, other nations, other uh, you know societies, is that we have that rule of law. At least we're, we're holding on to it with, the, with our fingernails right now, but we we still do. Um, but you know, they knew I believed in the mission. I wasn't selling it because I was told to, and I think that it was contagious. You know, I think that um, you, you were know, like and, a pie piper. Respect. You were like the Pied Piper in, in, in the 50th, in the precinct, and in task force. You know, there are guys, that, there are supervisors, they talk a good game, they'll never back you up, or they, they, they expect you to do these ridiculous things. I mean, you just, it, like you said, you want to make me happy? Work. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not just for me, it's for the cause. Don't forget why you joined. It's so easy for, for cops to get disheartened, especially today. Um, and I'm so grateful there are cops that are out there still doing God's work because it's not easy. It's much harder than it was when we were doing it. Um, and, you know, I would always, whenever we had something difficult to overcome or a difficult task to try and, um, you know, maybe uh, go after a real bad robbery pattern group, you know, um, I would always try and tell them, hey, listen, just, just imagine that that victim is your family member, you know? What if it were, you know? Wouldn't you want the cops to do their very best for them? It's really pretty simple. It's for the people, you know? That's the truth. I believe it to this day. I believed it then. And they knew I, I believed it. I wasn't selling them a bag of, you know, of crap. I was selling them what I believed. And I just wanted to get as many people to follow along and, and do the right thing. And, and let, let's, let's have a good time while we're doing it if we can. You know, and we did. You know, I think I think going out of patrol in the five zero, uh, I never saw so many smiling faces. You know, when, you know, when we'd catch somebody because they had been almost sequestered from doing that by their previous sergeant. You know, so that's that. That to answer your question, I think that there was a lot of mutual respect, which made it easier to walk the line. Definitely, and I th I think on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Peter, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Where can, what's the name of your company and where can people find you? It's called KH Brider Security Services. Um, the easiest way is just Google KH B-R-I-G-E-R um, and it comes up with the, the phone number. You can reach out or email us. You know, we provide, uh, we do a lot of school work. You said I was in a school unit. We do a lot of public schools and private schools. It, that, that experience really helps me to deliver excellent um, school security, which is not easy because um, you have to be able to, again, walk a line uh, because uh, you, know, you, have to, you have to be able to be strict, but you also have to understand you're in, a, uh, you know, in their house, in the educational environment. 
and, and still, but keep them safe, and especially today. So that's the majority of our work, but we do all kinds of stuff, you know. Uh, really, I, I, I find it challenging. Give me a new challenge. You know, if you, if you have something that, that, that you need protected, let me know. You should write a book, and that should be the title. Give me a new challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I got enough to worry about. Uh, I don't know that I have a book in me. Not unlike yourself. I know you have several, which you have yet to send me, please. I'll send you a book. All right, so yeah. we're going to wrap this up. Peter Marino, thank you again for tuning in. Just hang out for a second. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning into the show. If you enjoy the content, I, I encourage you to check out my books on Amazon. Just go to the Amazon book section, type in my name, Vic, Ferrari Like the Car. My Amazon book library will come up. NYPD Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department's one of them. Um, $10 paperback, $2.99 ebook download. Thanks again, and I'll have another episode coming in soon.